Hey there, this is Ryan Sheets, the director of the Business Communication Lab. Today, Allison Banks and I will be speaking with Ross Lawrence, a Walton alum who serves as the owner and president of White Ember Financial Planning. We learn about his career choices and what he did to develop his skills. We had a great conversation and I am sure you will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Thank you again for coming. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I uh, actually grew up here in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and my parents actually gave me a hard time because when I came here to the U of A and through the Walton College, uh, I actually, I was a, a five-year senior because I switched from biology after two years to, oh. to finance investment management. And my parents gave me a hard time because I actually lived farther away from campus and would park at my ha- their house that's right behind Farmhouse on Lafayette and then walk. So they, they gave me a hard time about that. But that's how I kind of started. And um, I was, like I said, pre, I was pre-dental. I wanted to be a, be a dentist, and I went and worked for one and decided that that was not what I wanted to do. Uh, I was a fully licensed dental assistant for about eight months during a full school year, and it came time to May, and I was thinking the whole time, it's like, you know what, this just isn't for me. So May, I kind of put in my resignation from that job and went and talked to uh, my, my advisor uh, here on campus and said, hey, I want to do investments uh, because most of my friends had uh, – we're in finance, we're in business, and we talk about stocks and bonds. I had no clue really what those were, but it sounded really neat. I had seen all the, the, the movies about stockbrokers and that sort of stuff. I just thought it was cool. So I switched, uh, switched my major, and that was in uh, the spring of 2008. I went out, I went to uh, put on a suit, I printed out my resume that the Walton College helped me with, and I went to all of the, the investment firms, literally just in, in Google, just Googled investments and popped up 30 different places, took my resume all around Northwest Arkansas, uh, ended up landing an internship at Merrill Lynch uh, that would start in the fall. Uh, and I, so I started in the fall of 2008. Well, um, in 2008, uh, now most of the listeners probably won't know, but in 2008, if you were asking your parents or grandparents, the market from the high to the low fell about 54%. So if you had a million dollars in savings, all of a sudden you would have lost half a million dollars in about a three month period. So I was, I literally started at Merrill Lynch as that was happening, and I saw um, people coming into the office literally in tears as they had watched their life savings literally disappear before their eyes. They had no clue what was going on, uh, but I saw really good financial advisors that were helping them through that, uh, where the, the clients would leave and they would be somewhat comforted. You know, the money was still gone for that period, uh, but somewhat comforted, uh, and those financial advisors were helping them develop a plan to let you know, hey, you can still retire. Uh, it's not the end of the world. Things will be okay. So I decided I wanted to, to be a financial advisor, and uh, that led me to, to here, I guess. What's your favorite stockbroker movie? So, um, <laughs> or like, because you mentioned you've seen all the yep. movies. What's your uh, favorite one? Wall Street, 1987. Actually, that oh, was the Gordon Gecko. That was the year that I was uh, was born, is when that came out. And I still have it. I have it in Blu ray because when it came out in Blu ray, I had it in DVD, video, VHS. Then my dad got it for me in DVD. And then when I had Blu ray. Uh, the, so I still have it. And every once in a while, I whip it out and, and watch it. I love that movie to this day. So, but it, 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 some of that movie, it's so funny when you. you a lot of these Wall Street movies, like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff, is, is based on true facts, but there's so much, uh, I guess, creative license to do <laughs> to do other stuff. But Wolf of Wall Street, when you dig into the actual details of what was happening, there's so much that was true that really went in that laws came into effect to stop that later on. Yeah. So it's a, a, not a historical representation, I guess, but it is sure. based on, on fact, and I just thought it was a, a great story. 
Uh, can you really just break down in simple terms for, for our listeners, what does a financial advisor do? And, and also, you know, you recently named one of the top financial advisors um, at LPL Financial. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Um, how did you earn this title so early? Well, I, I, I did it a little, little differently. You know, and, uh, and luckily, it was actually my dental background that helped me get here because I, as, as a dentist, it is very common for you to uh, graduate from dental school, and then you go out and buy a retiring dentist practice, kind of work with them for a couple of years, and then buy them out. Well, I usually the route for financial advisors is sales. You are you go out there and you get your parents as clients, you get your um, friends and family uh, and try to bring them in as clients to try to get gather assets as quickly as possible. I wanted uh, from seeing 2008, I wanted into the profession, but I was like, you know what? Um, if I go out there and I, if I fail, if I bring my clients on or my, my family, my friends, my parents on as clients, and then two or three years down the line, I fail. I can't make it. I can't bring in more clients. Uh, I can never really come back into this industry and be trusted. So it's like I have one chance to make this actually work, um, and I had learned from uh, the dental background that you could buy dental practices. So I said, I wonder if you can do that with financial advisors. So I literally just started Googling, and I found a firm that that's what they do. They're kind of a broker, kind of a real estate agent, so to speak, uh, for new financial advisors coming in uh, and buying retiring advisors. So I uh, just went kind of looking for that, which was very tough. And I couldn't really find anybody, and I was young enough that when I would have those conversations, you know, I, I looked pretty young, and I looked really young at the time. Everyone kind of wrote me off. Um, but there was actually a, a job listing here at the Wall College on the Career Center website for an associate wealth advisor position. And I had my resume in there, my cover letter in there already. So I just hit the button to apply for this. I kind of did a little bit of research, but not much. I didn't even know where it was. I knew it was in Missouri. And I heard back. It was from Hoffman Financial Resources up in Nevada, Missouri. And I had a couple interviews with them uh, over the phone. I went up, and this was in uh, November, December uh, of the year I graduated. So that was 2010, I guess. And I graduated in May of 11. So I w- went through the process on my last really in-person interview. It was my second in-person in- interview after two phone. And it was basically them kind of offering the job and seeing if it would work, if I would move to, the, to this small town. And I said, yes, uh, I will do that. Um, however, at some point, I'd like to have the possibility of becoming a partner uh, or just purchasing the firm as you retire. Now, at the time, uh, the gentleman was only 52 years old. So he, he was like, you know what? In 10 or 15 years, that sounds great. That's a great thing that we can work to as long as things obviously work out in, in the, along the way. Well, so I, I took the job, moved up to Nevada, Missouri. Uh, most of my friends thought I was crazy because uh, out of, I think, the 70-plus jobs that I applied for, most of them were Chicago and New York for that industry. Uh, and then to end up in a small town like that, um, it was just kind of a, a uh, left turn, uh, 180 degrees difference. So I, I took the job, moved up there. Uh, things went way faster uh, because I didn't have to sell. I, was not, I did not have to bring in any clients, which was what I was hoping for. I was just there to service existing clients. Well, because I uh, was only focusing on that and learning the investments and how to do things and how to build financial plans and everything that goes along with it, 
I could focus a lot of time on that. So four and a half years in, it became apparent that I, I was having the same conversations with our top clients uh, that Greg Hoffman, uh, my, my boss at the time, was having, and he felt comfortable at that point starting the transition uh, for me to, to purchase him. And actually, it, was, uh, it started because I made a financial plan for him, showing that he, had, uh, he could wait another 10 years to, to sell it to me, and he had a very good probability of living the lifestyle he wanted in retirement, or he could go ahead and, and do it now. And he had a great pro probability, I guess. So he said, after seeing all the numbers, he said, okay, let's do it. So because of that, and that does not happen very often, uh, that kind of um, skyrocketed the number of clients that I had, uh, of course, in the firm and already had a team in place. So I just kind of stepped into the role. And because that does not happen very often, that's why uh, I became one of the, the top advisors at LPL before uh, moving to another broker dealer. And, and that's what landed me on the, now no one else saw this, but every financial advisor in the country had my face uh, on their desk because I ended up on the cover of Financial Planning Magazine, uh, which was kind of uh, uh, neat. And now I go to these conferences and everybody recognizes me. So it's kind of <laughs> weird. Weird but cool. Weird, weird but cool, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun. So you touched on like how you went from the advisor to an owner, but what would you say was the hardest lesson you learned as you made that transition? Uh, that uh, as good as I thought I was as a financial advisor, I, I thought that I would be a good business owner. I knew the ins and outs. I had obviously had a business degree, so I'd done the, the business strategy and everything like that. Uh, the hardest part, I think, was um, learning how everything works together where a budget like I know how to budget make an Excel spreadsheet and we have QuickBooks and do all that so that was tough but then how do you blend that in with the human resources aspect and uh, and we are we are a very close team there's five of us and we are a team and we work together and everybody kind of handles their portion uh, but you really have to be careful of you know making sure that everyone's uh, happy making sure that everyone feels appreciated and that is a, a, a full-time job uh, making sure that everybody has the training that they, they need, that they desire, that they want. And that really is a whole different aspect that I had never really uh, experienced before. Um, so luckily the, the team, we're all very, very close and we do uh, some really great things. But that was uh, the biggest shock for me that I wasn't totally prepared for. So can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like going from being just a college student to that financial advisor, just in terms of like, how did your lifestyle change? How did you know? How did you make that balance? So it is, you know, work-life balance is something that everybody throws out all the time, and it, it is tough. Um, but uh, I think those first couple of years, you kind of have a uh, a pass, a hall pass. What I guess you would say to to work as hard as you can, and in those first years, it really can make or break your career on not not what your job is or where you're living or what you're doing but the interactions, the people that you're meeting, how they feel about you uh, when you leave. So in those first couple of years, I worked, as hard as I worked at becoming a financial advisor, I worked even harder on building a reputation for not being some little kid right out of, right out of college uh, that can't be trusted. Um, so I worked really hard at that. I tried to work you know, 10 times harder at that, 10 times harder at uh, building trust um, and increasing what people thought of me. So you know, our average client, uh, is almost 71 years old in our office. So in many cases, these our clients are entrusting their life savings to someone younger than their grandkids. They are telling the inner workings of their, their life, what uh, family conflicts are coming up about money, uh, what their dreams are, what they want to do for the rest of their life to someone younger than their grandkids. And I thought for a long time 
until very recently, I thought that that was a huge hurdle for, for me, for someone younger, to come up and be able to prove that value. Uh, but just in the last year or so, really since we did our a big business transition, you know, I found that that's really not the case anymore. Um, more and more, and maybe it's because I am uh, increasing you know, my, my visibility and, and the trust and people are getting to know me better, uh, but now uh, we're gathering clients that I would never have dreamed of because they don't want to go to someone with gray hair or that someone that's been in the trenches for 30 years. They want to go to someone that will be with them for the next 40 years. I've got another 40 years in my career. They don't want to go through the whole financial planning process. Uh, they don't want to have to go through the, oh, I'm going to trust you when they're 85 years old, and they just don't want to mess with that. Uh, so we've been able to, to kind of position ourselves to say, hey, you know what? We worked really hard. Everybody, you know, you trust us now. And then they, regardless of age, it, it kind of, the age goes away after a certain number of years out of college. You know, you kind of talked about your, your internships uh, a little bit, but and also you talked about how you sort of built trust quickly and you focused on that, but what was different about the way you presented yourself in your internship, maybe not the dental one, but your internship <laughs> uh, versus your first job? So I, I would almost argue that it, it was very similar. Mm-hmm. And I think actually some of my, my friends in college you know, I, I, I did not have, I was not a straight A student. I, I knew that I had to work harder, that I had to get some internships, so my resume would look really good. And that's why I started doing this, and all my internships were unpaid. So um, for my last summer before I graduated, I was working 20 hours a week uh, at Merrill Lynch up in Rogers, Arkansas, and then 20 hours a week here in Fayetteville at the Chamber of Commerce as an economic development intern. So 40 hours a week unpaid, and I was working at Olive Garden for 40 hours a week, uh, waiting tables just so I could support myself. Uh, I worked really hard. Uh, and at Merrill Lynch, for instance, my job was filing. That is all I did. Um, I would file, and I would go from this financial advisor to the next financial advisor, just filing, putting files back. It was extremely monotonous, but every single day I showed up. I showed up in my suit. I was there ready to work. I never complained. But every chance I got, I was asking questions just to grab someone in in the hallway and say, hey, how did that meeting go? What investments are you using? Why are you using them? What led you into this career? Every single time that I could, I was asking questions. Uh, And there were other interns there that were, you know, if there was nothing to do, they were trying to play on the Bloomberg machine or messing around or or just uh, they weren't there to, uh, they were there for a resume not as much to, to learn. And because at this point I had known it was my career, I made it, I was gonna learn everything I could. Uh, so I think, and this is purely my opinion, but I think if you went to all those uh, internships, or the people that were my bosses under those internships, if you were to ask them, uh, they would say that I was extremely professional, that I never complained, uh, that I was there to learn more so. So it was, it was unpaid, but I was getting paid uh, in the knowledge. Um, and I know as corny as that sounds, um, I absolutely believe that those unpaid internships uh, were some of the main reasons that I had have had the opportunities uh, that I've had so far. You know, one of the things that, that really that, that really just resonated with me was that that asking questions, not wasting a single single moment, um, and and sort of getting paid by the knowledge you get back. What Obviously, you did that to sharpen your skills and develop your talents. What, what other pieces of advice would you give for students who are, who are currently 
looking for an internship in the middle of an internship or maybe going to transition from an internship to a job. Um, is that the main thing, asking questions, treating every opportunity as a learning opportunity? Or, or is there something else, something more too? You know, I, I think it is, so asking questions is number one. But the reason I ask questions is I am very quick, very quick to admit that I don't know. Um, and there are certain things that just in our business that I just don't, uh, not just admitting that I don't know, but that I am not good at. Uh, I, I really try to, to kind of delegate what I'm not good at. Uh, and usually what you're not good at is what you don't like doing anyway. Um, but asking questions and knowing, uh, don't think that you know everything. You know, when I go to financial advising, advisor conferences uh, and I go to as many as I can do, I, I go to them not for what's being taught or what lessons or what speakers. I go to sit down at lunch and have as many conversations as I can, can have. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with lunch or dinner with somebody and missed the whole next session because I was so enthralled with what they were saying, with, uh, with uh, asking all the questions that I could possibly answer. And then I got to a certain point where it was like, okay, uh, I'm asking these questions, but they kind of know my background or know what we're doing or what changes we're making or what technology we're adding, and they start asking me questions. So I've always moved, I guess, to, to the next playground. I never want to be, I, I, I don't sound mean, I'll answer, you know, any younger financial advisors or students, uh, I think there's three kids right now going through the Walton College that I kind of pushed into this. I'm always available for questions, but when I'm going to these conferences or when I'm talking to other advisors that are, that are bigger, um, better, um, faster, whatever it is, I'm grilling them for questions and always kind of moving to the next playground. I know that I've kind of outgrown a space when I get people are asking me more questions than I'm asking. I'm like, okay, time to move to the next group and try to just suck information out. Um, and I think at a certain point, you know, people, when they become successful or have a job, they stop asking questions. You know, it's a, you get your first job, it's a great job, you're working wherever it is, and you say, I've made it. And you kind of stop. You say, hey, you know what, I want to move up to the next level, but you're not sitting down with those people and, and asking asking questions. You know, I, uh, I've had, uh, I guess, opportunities to talk with some of the best financial advisors in the country, and most of those conversations happen because I literally just call them out of the blue, cold call them. I say, hey, you know what? I'm a younger advisor. I would love to learn. Obviously, you've been successful. Can you spare 15 minutes for me? And then all of a sudden, you get in there, and they're giving you a whole hour, and it's, it's great. Uh, but that is, if there's one skill that I have, it's admitting that I don't know and going to as many people uh, to get the answers as possible. Uh, and usually, one person's not enough. you got to go to four or five or six people asking the exact same question, and you'll get five or six different answers. Yeah. Now, I'd say if you ask a 1,000 different financial advisors what the best investment mix is, you're going to get a 1,000 different answers because everybody believes something different. But if you do ask those 1,000 different questions, the same question a 1,000 times, you are going to be able to answer that in the way that you feel is the best and have all the background knowledge uh, to know what other people are saying. Yeah, I like that point about it's almost like having the courage to admit you don't know everything, but not being settled on that. Right. Like, you know, and I think that's something that students have a lot of trouble with. They have, they have a hard time because you're supposed to know a lot. You're in college. Like, you're supposed to know all the things because you've been tested on them. And, and having that sort of just simple learner mentality and humility, it's like, yeah, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. I don't know, I don't, really don't know a lot, <laughs> but I, I like that point. That's really interesting. 
<laughs> in your company and industry, you work a lot with multi-generational clients, a lot of Correct. baby boomers, um, I'm sure maybe even a few millennials in there, yep. just all range. So how have you transitioned with communicating with those different audiences? How do you adjust your communication for each of them? You know, it's uh, when you're when you're when everybody out there is kind of thinking about how they communicate with their friends versus their parents versus their grandparents, uh, it is very very different. Uh, and I went in thinking that same thing, but once I'm in there and I'm talking to millennials or I'm talking to uh, a 90-year-old, you know, the communication style really is the, the same. I have done quite a bit, uh, which which you wouldn't expect. You'd think that's very different, but mm-hmm. once that's only on a when I was thinking beforehand of talking to my grandparents or my parents, I am thinking of the relationships that I have with them, that they have um, this this wisdom, and I'm 50 years younger, uh, and I gotta be. But when you're when I'm in there with a client that's 85 years old, they don't they want to know that you have the wisdom uh, to get them where they need to go. Uh, and at the very core, it's uh, everybody just wants to to feel listened to. They want to know that you're listening to them, that you're talking to them, that you're working with them to solve their their problems. I've done. I, I literally just finished a book. I told my office I, I drive quite a bit in between our Bentonville, Arkansas office and our Nevada, Missouri office. It's about an hour and 46 minutes door to door, and I listen to a lot of audible.com, all the books that I can, can listen to. And usually they're not, uh, they're the how to, you know, Tony Robbins type of stuff where you're trying to be, become a better person or healthier or whatever it is. And the last one I listened to was uh, How to Talk to Anyone 92 Tips and Tricks. And I, I joked, I told my office this. And uh, that I was, I had just bought this book. And they're like, Ross, I don't think you, you need that. You don't need help <laughs> learning to talk to people. And, and I said, you know what? That that is a, another skill that I'm always trying to develop of how to talking talk to people. Uh, and what I mean is not so much talking at them or you know the the old the, you you want them to talk uh, more than you are or anything like that. You always want to be a good listener. But I mean the the nonverbal skills that are just as big. I literally, before a meeting, I put my hands above my head, like in the championship position, <laughs> and I pump myself up. Uh, I smile on the phone because all those nonverbal cues, it doesn't matter the age. They're the same for everybody. And then you back in uh, to everything else. So the content of what I, I'm saying between millennials and baby boomers is extremely different. But the way it's delivered, uh, the tone of voice, how you do it, uh, they just want to know that you're listening and that you care, and that's it. And that doesn't matter what age you are. Can you think of any like specific instance though where you had a challenge when communicating with a client? You know, there's uh, there's several. Uh, well, I, I'll step back. Um, I had trouble communicating with my mom actually. You know, every day I am in the office and I'm asking people. Um, what their what their dreams are, what their uh, what their kids are like, how they feel about their kids, are they successful, are they not? How much money they're making, what their net worth is, how much debt they have, extremely personal questions, um, and it takes a while to kind of for the client to be comfortable with me asking those. But sometimes I get into the zone and I just get into my habit of doing it, and I can really shock people by just coming out and asking these questions. And the worst, not the worst, but the, I guess the best example of misreading was I was just having a conversation with my mother. It was over Christmas about three years ago, maybe four years ago at this point, uh, maybe into the job one or two years. And we were talking, I was like, oh, about how much money is in your 401k? And she just st- she sat back up in her chair and she said, Ross, that was really rude. And I, I just like, I, my wife, I, I'm sure I blushed. I had no clue what to say. I was like, I am so sorry. I'm, 
just so used to saying it that you can't be that that abrupt. I have to, so one of my challenges is not cutting right to the chase. You gotta kind of ease in into the into the pool, so to speak. So if you were to even go back further in time, what would you tell freshman Ross? You know, uh, the there's there's a couple things I've always heard is, you know, when you go to college, you know, don't spend all your time partying. Well, I didn't. I definitely was out there. I didn't stay uh, home alone uh, every single weekend. <laughs> uh, but I think I wasted a lot of time. Um, I didn't hang out enough. And you probably don't hear that often, but I did not hang out enough. And I uh, did not work hard enough uh, at school. Uh, there was so much downtime where I was just sitting sitting at home with some of my roommates just watching TV or playing video games. Uh, and that was really, it was a fun time, but I spent way too much time doing that. If I had taken some of that time and spent more time even going to Devil's Den or going down to you know, just play some basketball or whatever it is and spent a little bit more time on schoolwork, it would have made things so much easier and way less stressful. I mean, I was just a ball of stress for the, like three weeks before finals and finals weeks. That was a terrible time of the year uh, every time finals came around. And if I had just spent a little more time studying, not cutting into the party time or friend time, just the time that you're wasting sitting at home doing nothing, uh, it would have made everything a little bit more, more fun, I think. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We learned so much about Ross and the choices he made and the transitions he experienced. Next episode, we'll finish the conversation. Thanks again for listening.